0: Okay, so my name's Carl. Welcome to Parkway. Welcome to Theological Equipping Class, uh, where we have been uh, this semester talking about biblical themes, taking particular themes that we find woven throughout the scriptures and try to isolate them and, and highlight them and talk about uh, how we see these things uh, throughout God's Word so that we might better understand some of the intricacies about what's going on in the scriptures. So... Today's theme is the lowly being exalted. And so this is a theme that could be easily overlooked or maybe even misunderstood or dismissed simply because it's a, it's a thing we see and we're like, yeah, that's cool. Jesus was lowly, nice. Uh, so it's easy for us to perhaps misunderstand or misapply the meaning or importance of this theme. And so I'm hoping that together we can consider this phrase, the lowly being exalted together and better understand the purpose of God's will and his use of it. So let's pray and then we'll get into it. Father, uh, we love you and we're thankful that you love us. We're grateful that it is by your mercy and your grace that we can know you because your spirit has illuminated the truth of your word to our hearts, given us faith, given us a new heart that loves you and hates sin. And, And so we ask for you to to continue that work of illumination in us as we study your word, as we kind of come at it from different angles, thinking about themes and trying to see some of the overarching realities of this narrative that you've given to us about who you are and what you've done and what you're doing and what you will do. We ask for you to help us, help us to see some of these things better than we see them. And in doing so, that we would have our hearts enlivened and encouraged that we would grow in affection and love for you because of how you show yourself to us. And so we ask that. We ask that we might know you better through these studies, through these times together, that your name would be made great, that our hearts would be encouraged, that we would be reminded of the goodness and mercy and grace that we have in Christ, how much you have done for us, how merciful to us you have been. And so we're thankful. And so we ask for you to be near to us as we study this morning together, and then we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so if you've got your notes, uh, we've got a little outline. If you don't have notes they are in the back of the room on a music stand, you can grab that as your le- at your leisure if you don't already have one. So we've got a little outline here, kind of have five major points that we're going to try to get through this morning. The first one is, what do we mean by these words? What do we mean by the word lowly? What do we mean by the word exalted? Trying to make sure that we're all on the same page about what that means to begin with. And then second and third, we're going to look at a few examples of where we see this idea of the lowly being exalted in the Old Testament and then in the New Testament. And then fourth, we will look at Jesus himself. We'll look at Jesus Christ, who is the perfect example of the lowly being exalted. And then lastly, we'll look at and consider together what is it that we should see? What is it that we should understand in light of this theme being present throughout God's Word? So... Let's begin with the first one, right? Number one, what do we mean by the words lowly and exalted? I've got a couple of definitions here. I don't think you'll be terribly shocked by these definitions, but I think it's helpful for us to start in the same place. So lowly would mean to be low in honor or low in status or low in rank, right? Uh, That seems normal to us. If you are low on the totem pole at your job, you have a lowly status in that company or whatever, but in the Bible, the idea of knowing that you're low, knowing that your status is low, knowing that your honor level is low, low, knowing that your rank is low, is woven into this. When the scriptures talk about a lowly people or someone being lowly, there is usually the idea of them knowing it wrapped up in that. So that along with this status comes ideas like humility and meekness and contriteness of heart. So, those things tend to be woven into that word as well when they're used in the scriptures. So, that's lowly. The second one is exalted, right? That means to be lifted up, right? Specifically in honor or in rank or in status, okay? So, the lowly being exalted is where we see God taking someone of low status and exalting them to some higher status. And this Takes a whole bunch of different forms throughout the text, but that's what we're talking about. So, in terms of thinking about it in our own terms, in human terms, think of things like uh, at, a, at a company, you've got a guy who works in the mailroom, That guy's of lowly status, right? And the CEO, he's been exalted. He has a place of high status. He's important. He makes more money. He has more honor, and so on. Or in the in the military, a private, the lowest rank in the army, versus a general, the highest rank in the army. Now. I've always, always have to include some sort of Little Caesars reference. So, a dishwasher uh, versus a general manager, a Little Caesars. Okay, that would be lowly and exalted. I've held both of those positions, by the way. I don't know if I've mentioned that before. Well, I'll mention it now. It's important to me. <laughs> it shouldn't be, but whatever. Let's keep going. We are prone as humans, as Uh, people, we're prone to do what we always do when we consider the things of God, to look at our experience, to look at the, the human lens of things and try to then interpret God's actions and God's will and God's purpose through our experience, right? So those examples that I just gave you, while helpful to make clear what's lowly and what's exalted, are not really in step with what the scriptures mean by this term, And so when we think of the guy who's lowly and the guy who's exalted, we tend to think of a person who has accomplished that for themselves, right? The examples that I gave you are actually inadequate in trying to understand God's purposes with the theme that we're talking about this morning. So I hope by the end of our time today that we'll have a better picture of how God is actually using this idea. So continuing on, number two, the lowly being exalted in the Old Testament. Now, I've got quite a few examples here. This is not comprehensive. I could give you, we could erase all of these and find 15 or 20 more. These are the ones that seemed most prevalent, most obvious, most low-hanging fruit, most interesting, whatever you want to call it. And so these are just some of the places where this theme appears. The first one on your list here is Adam. So God is creating the world, right? He's making everything out of nothing. He creates the world. He creates the water. He creates the land. He creates the plants and the fish and the birds and the animals. And finally, he finishes with the creation of man. And he does not go and take the most precious thing that we might think and take a pile of gold and say, I'm going to make a man out of this. No, he reaches down into the dirt and picks it up and breathes life into it, takes this lowliest of creation. No one would look at the dirt and be like, ooh, look what God did. Right? People look at the Grand Canyon, or trees, or mountains, or a blue whale, and they say, look what God did. But he takes the dirt, this lowliest thing, and breathes life into it, and exalts him to the pinnacle of his creation. He says, everything else I've made isn't as good as this. This is very good. And so we see this idea of lowly being exalted, even from the very, very beginning of creation. Next on your list, Abraham. Abraham is this nobody, this weird dude who lives out in the middle of nowhere, worships the moon, he's in a far off land, and we would never have heard of him if it weren't for the fact that God intervened and said, I have chosen you to be the man through whom my Savior will come. I am going to rescue and redeem the world, and I'm going to do it through your line. So he takes this lowly man and exalts him to this position of ultimate remembrance, the ultimate patriarch of the faith is this man, Abraham. So it's through him that God chooses to reconcile the world to himself. And it's because of God taking this lowly man and exalting him that we even know who he is because of what God has done in him. Next on your list, Isaac, right? Isaac is the son of Abraham. He was born, he was this promised child that that old Abraham and his wife thought, no way we're ever gonna have a kid, but then they did because God is gracious and kind gives them this son, and almost immediately, at least in the narrative, almost immediately, Isaac goes to the lowest status of what he could be. He's just going to be a sacrifice. God says, go and sacrifice your son. So now he's supposed to just be this thing that's killed, slaughtered, put on an altar, and burned as as an offering, as as a symbol of worship to God. And yet God rescues him from that and exalts him to this place of continuing this line this heritage this legacy of promise that God has given to his people. And so he was going to be sacrificed by his father but was instead rescued by God and exalted by God to continue this lineage of promise. Next, Joseph, Joseph the second youngest son of Jacob. You remember Jacob, right, the brother of Esau who was the second born, right? Esau was first. Joseph was uh, second. I'm sorry, Jacob was second. And he ends up being the one who carries the promise. Why? Because his brother sold his birthright to him. He's like, hey, you hungry? Here's some soup. Hook me up with that birthright. He's like, you got it, bro. I'm super hungry. you right? And so Jacob then ends up being the one who carries this promise from God, this lineage of faith, this legacy. And he ends up having 12 sons with four different women. And he is... Uh, and so this, the second youngest of those sons is Joseph. Joseph is, of course, envied and then betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery. So he becomes this lowly place, this lowly estate that he's in. He's a slave. He's imprisoned. And through the miraculous intervention of God, through his providence, through his grace, Joseph becomes the second in command over all of Egypt. He's able to interpret dreams And he's elevated and honored by God within this context to be the man through whom all of Egypt and then all of Israel will be rescued and saved from famine. Because of Joseph's ability to interpret dreams, he understands that there's a famine coming. He prepares the way. He puts aside a lot of food, so much food that people outside of Egypt are able to benefit from Egypt's preparedness that was done by Joseph. And so then what we have is Joseph preparing this possibility for all of his family, this family that carries the promise of God, this lineage, this legacy, this heritage. They get to come into Egypt because of Joseph's clout, because of Joseph's relationship with Pharaoh, because of his exalted position. The entirety of the Israelite family is able to come into Egypt and to live and to prosper which they do. They prosper. They have tons and tons of kids, and they grow real fast. They're making babies all the time, kind of like Parkway. You guys are crushing it, okay? Job security. Yeah, I will never, ever lose my job. You guys keep having kids. Uh, So they have a bunch of kids. There's a new pharaoh. That pharaoh has no idea who Joseph is and doesn't care. He just sees this other ethnic group expanding at a rapid rate, and he doesn't like it. He wants Egyptian blood, to rule and reign and be the most prominent thing. And he sees all of these Hebrews having all these kids. And he says, man, I got I to slow this down. How am I going to slow it down? Well, he tells the Hebrew midwives, okay, here's what I want y'all to do. You guys are overseeing all the births of these Hebrew kids. When a baby is born, if it's a kid, kill it. If it's a, if it's a girl, let it live. That way those women can then marry and have kids with Egyptians Egyptian blood will grow, things will be better. Well, I won't have all these crazy Hebrews running around. And the midwives are like, "Mm -mm, nope, we're not doing that. So they lie to Pharaoh and they say, man, listen, you told us to kill the baby boys. And man, we really, really, really wanted to because, you know, you told us to do that. But here's what happens. Those Hebrew women, man, when they have babies, bing, bang, bong, they have them so fast. As soon as we find out they're about to have a kid, we run in there. So kid's already born, we couldn't kill it. Sorry. They're just so fast. They have babies so quick. I don't know what to do, but that's what's happening. So I don't know what you want me to do. And when we hear that story recounted to us in the Scriptures, we see another pattern of God exalting the lowly because those women are literally mentioned in the Scriptures by name. These two Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Puah, are mentioned by name in the Scriptures while the Pharaoh is just the king of Egypt. We don't get his name, we get their names. And there's a sense in which we can see this pattern of God saying, these lowly women whose job was to help with birth are being exalted to the point of being remembered for all of time, captured forever in God's word, because he has exalted them because of their faith and their obedience to God rather than to men. So the Hebrew midwives, God names the women, but he does not name the king of Egypt. Next on your list, Moses, right? God chooses this guy who is a murderer, who's living in hiding, trying to escape prosecution, right? He killed an Egyptian and then ran away, and now he's hiding in the wilderness, right? He's a guy with a speech impediment. He doesn't speak well. Maybe he has a stutter, and God chooses this guy, this hiding murderer who can't speak. That's who God chooses to take his message to Pharaoh and say, release my people, Let my people go. He's the one that God declares this message to. So here's this lowly guy who's a sinner, who's broken, who's fled from justice, and who doesn't know how to speak in a way that's helpful. God says, you're the one. I'm going to exalt you to lead my people, to talk to Pharaoh on my behalf. Don't worry. I will give you what you need. I am exalting you. You're not exalting yourself. You're not worthy of being exalted. I'm doing this. And so that's what we see in Moses. And then next on your list, I've just got the nation of Israel as a whole. So God chooses this nation to be his people. The Israelites, the Hebrews, those are God's chosen people. That's who God has put his love on and said, these are the people that I will redeem, I will rescue, I will love, I will be patient with, I will forgive, I will continue to bring them back to me again and again and again. And it isn't because they're big and it isn't because they're awesome. It has nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with God. Him choosing that people and exalting them to be his people is a choice of God. And we see that pretty clearly in Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8, which I have in your notes there. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest Of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So God chooses not a big and fancy and tough people, but the smallest people are the ones He chose for Himself. Next on your list here, I've got Rahab. Rahab is this woman who lives in the town of Jericho, right? So Joshua has taken over control of the Israelites and is taking them into the promised land. First place they get is Jericho. They send some spies in to check it out. And this woman, Rahab, hides the spies to protect them from the men who lead the city, the men in charge of Jericho, to protect those spies. She hides them. She lies to them. And who is she? She's a prostitute. She sells her body for money. That's what she does. But because of her faith and because of what she's done, God exalts her this lowly place. This woman who has chosen to utilize sexual activity for income has been exalted by God, and her name is mentioned in the halls of faith in Hebrews 11. She's praised in the book of James. Her name will forever be associated with faithful people. Not because she was great, she wasn't. Her occupation wasn't great. She was not a good person worthy of exalting, apart from God giving her the faith to be faithful. And then for him to exalt her and make her name be one that we would never forget, always captured in the scriptures. Next, the army of Gideon, right? You remember this story? Gideon has an army of 32,000 soldiers and God whittles it down to 300 before giving them a victory over Midian, right? Starts off with 32,000, and God says, that's too many. My name is the one that's going to be made great. I will exalt a smaller number of you. 32,000 is too many. Here's what I want you to do. Tell anybody who's scared, a little nervous, feeling a little anxious, they can go home. And 22,000 of them are like, that's me. I'm out. And they go home. So you started with 32,000. Now you're down to 10,000. God says, nope, too many. So he says, take them down to the water and let them drink. Whoever drinks by scooping it with their hand and lapping it like a dog, that's your guy. If they, if they lean all the way down into the water, tell them to go home. So 9,700 of them drink it the wrong way. He's left with 300 people. And that is who God chooses to give this victory to over the Midianite army. God exalts this tiny number, this impossible number of soldiers that could not win a battle on their own. And he gives them the victory. He exalts this lowly, small number of soldiers. Next, sweet David, King David, right? David, who is lowly being exalted the entirety of his life. He starts off being the smallest and youngest son of Jesse, isn't even considered worthy to be brought before Samuel. Samuel comes to Jesse's house. He's like, hey, Listen, God sent me. I'm supposed to pick one of your sons, anoint him with oil. He's going to be the next king. It's going to be pretty awesome. Why don't you bring your sons out here? And Jesse's like, here they are. And Samuel's like, these guys look fantastic. This is going to be great. And God's like, no, none of them. Stop looking at the outward appearance. I'm concerned with the heart. Find someone else. He's like, what, you have any other sons? He's like, yeah. You got weird David. He's watching the sheep and stuff. Do you want, you want to get him? Yeah, get him. He brings him. He's little. He's scrawny. He's weak. And God says, that's my guy. That's who I'm going to exalt to this position of the leader, the king of my people. So this young man who's too young and too weak to even be a part of the Israelite army ends up going to bring some lunch to his brothers and ends up being the guy who defends the honor of God's people by fighting and defeating the Philistine giant, Goliath. Not because he's great, but because God's great. And David had his hope and trust in God. And then as an adult... Doesn't really get any better. He's a murderous, adulterous man who's still loved by God, who's still chosen for great honor, for great legacy. It's through him that the Messiah will come. This legacy of promise, this heritage goes and continues through this man who was too young, too weak to be considered, who's too weak to fight, but he wins, and was too sinful to be considered worthy of such a role. And yet God says, this is a man after my own heart. God takes this lowly man who stays lowly his whole life and continues to exalt him his whole life. Next, Daniel. Daniel is an exiled slave. And through a similar experience to Joseph, he's able to interpret dreams and he becomes the second in command in all of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar exalts him to being second in command in a similar fashion to Joseph, this idea that, Here's this lowly man who was exiled, who was taken into captivity, who was a slave, but through the providence and mercy of God is exalted to the position of power and authority and influence. Okay, so those are the examples we've got for Old Testament. Number three, the lowly being exalted in the New Testament. So I've just got a few here. The first first one is Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph, kind of the first two characters that we're introduced to in the New Testament when we start the Gospels. These two unknowns, right, who are just engaged to be married, they wanna live their life, they wanna do this stuff. But God intervenes and gives Mary this child. She conceives Jesus in her womb by the Holy Spirit, and and God, by his mercy, exalts these two lowly kids to being prominent figures in the redemption narrative that he's weaving throughout his word. And Mary understands this well, and she speaks of it clearly in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 49, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, talking about herself. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And so Mary understands what's happening, that she is lowly, she is undeserving of any kind of honor, any kind of prestige, any kind of exaltation, and yet she sees that's exactly what God has chosen to do with me. She's chosen to exalt me and to use me for his purposes to do great things, because that's what God does. So we're skipping Jesus himself, because we've got a whole section on him in just a few minutes. So we're going to Jesus' disciples. Now, I've got them all listed out here in kind of the main thing that we know about each of them. Okay? So Simon Peter fisherman. He's also kind of a boisterous, mouthy guy. We know that. But Andrew, fisherman. James and John, both the sons of Zebedee, fisherman. Philip, we don't really know much about this guy. We kind of know because he's in a list. He's in a list that's given to us. Here's the disciples. We don't hear much from him or about him. Same thing with Bartholomew. We, don't, we know he's a disciple because he's on the list. Thomas, of course, is known for his doubting of the resurrection. Show me the wound in his side. Show me the holes in his hands, and I'll believe. Matthew, who's mostly known for the gospel of Matthew, as well as being a tax collector. Right? Tax collectors aren't, aren't well-loved or well-esteemed in this time period, in this culture. Then we've got James, the son of Alphaeus, to be differentiated from James, the son of Zebedee, and that's literally the only thing we know about him that's different, that he's the son of Alphaeus. We just know it's a different James. Thaddeus also known as Judas, the son of James, which is about the only other thing we know about him. And then we've got Simon. We know he's the zealot because he's often called Simon the zealot. So ostensibly, he was part of this kind of political group that was really fervent and eager to defend the history and the culture and the the heritage of the Jewish people. Then we have Judas Iscariot, who, of course, is known for betraying Jesus, And lastly here, I've got Matthias, who's only known for replacing Judas after Judas is dead. Okay, So we've got these 13 men, and none of them have anything really significant or great about them. These guys weren't chosen because they were smart. They weren't chosen because they were cool. They weren't chosen because they were tough. They were chosen because they were lowly. God decided to choose the lowest people, the people you would never expect to be those who would follow and be the disciples of the Messiah. These men were exalted from their lowly estate. Stop catching fish for a living. Stop trying and hoping for a catch so you can make a little money at market and come and follow me for the rest of your life. And then last year we've got Saul who becomes Paul. What's his story? Well, he is well-educated. He's super smart. He's got all of the credentials that a Pharisee could want. But he's also a murderous prosecutor and persecutor of Christians, He's chasing down and imprisoning and killing the followers of Christ. And he becomes this lowly man in a moment on the road to Damascus where God strikes him down to the ground, blinds him, and says, Why are you persecuting me? Follow me. And he does. And then God exalts him to being one of the primary authors of the New Testament. So again and again and again throughout the Scriptures, we see evidence of persecution. God taking these lowly people, exalting them for his purposes to do great things in his kingdom and to further the the method by which he has chosen to rescue and redeem his people. So number four, Jesus Christ himself, the perfect example of the lowly being exalted. There's more examples I could give here but for the sake of time. I'm just going to do a few. The first one is, of course, where he was born. Where was he born? In a stable, right? He could have been born in, a, in the inn next door or whatever, but he wasn't. He was born in a stable. I don't know where you were born. I don't, I don't think I'm very important, but I was definitely born in a hospital. Maybe you were born in a hospital or in someone's home or something like that. You were probably born somewhere where it was clean, where there was some degree of medical attention available to you and to your mother. That's where most of us were born, but not Jesus. Not the Savior of the world, not the greatest to ever have lived. He was born in a stable and then laid in a manger. A manger is like literally a food trough where they would feed the animals. That becomes his little crib. So he's born in this lowly place. And then where is his birth announced? His birth is announced to the shepherds. He doesn't go and announce it to the kings. He doesn't go announce it in the cities. He sends this legion of angels to the hillside to sing the praises of God to these lowly, stinky, sheep herding kids. That's who gets to hear the announcement of the coming of the Messiah. Because God is weaving this idea, I will bring the lowly and exalt them. Because only me, only I can do that and only I am worthy of being exalted and having my name made great. And so God is continuing to do this. And so then where does does Jesus live after that? Well, his family, Escapes to Egypt to get away from Herod because they think Herod might be trying to kill Jesus. So they go to Egypt for a little bit. And when they leave Egypt, where do they go? They go to Nazareth. Nazareth is where Jesus grows up. And where's Nazareth? It is this little nowhere town. It's a nothing place. It's so unknown and so small and so out of the way that the gospel writers have to tell us where it is. When they say Jerusalem, they don't reference where Jerusalem is because everybody knows where Jerusalem is. When they tell us where Nazareth is, they have to say Nazareth, this town in Galilee, because it's unknown. It's lowly. And that's where he grew up. For the the rest of his life, after he grows up and becomes an adult and then goes and is baptized by John the Baptist and begins his ministry, for the rest of his adult life, where does he live? Nowhere. He's homeless. He is this lowly man with no place to live. Luke 9, verse 58, and Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds have the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And then at the end of his ministry, what happens to him? He is scorned, abused, beaten, and he dies. A, cru- a cruel death, a crucifixion, a death that was meant for slaves, for political agitators, for criminals. This is how he dies. He dies in this lowly way, in the same way that he was born, the same way that he lived. And so we see these patterns of lowliness throughout Jesus' life. But I think the most compelling thing is that the Scriptures speak so explicitly about his lowliness over and over and over again. And I've got several of the texts here, and I'll read them to you quickly. Matthew 11, verses 28 and 30. Jesus says, "'Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest.'" Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of God of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And so Paul makes it very clear to us there in that passage how Jesus chooses the lowliness, he embraces the lowliness, and then God exalts him. And then in the book of Matthew, this is toward the end of Jesus' ministry, he's preparing to enter the city of Jerusalem, and it says, now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So here's Jesus coming into the city. The people are expecting something quite different than what he actually is bringing. They're expecting a conquering king to come in, which would have come in on a, on a war horse, but Jesus is lowly and humble because the job that he's doing is different than the job they think he's doing, and he comes in on a donkey. And then in John 13, Jesus is having supper with his disciples, and then starting in verse 3, he says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Foot washing is a symbol of submission, a symbol of honor. Someone of a lower station would wash the feet of someone of a higher station. And so Jesus is saying, through this act, I am a servant. I am coming low. I am being lowly. My father will exalt me, but I am coming low and serving you. That's what this act is doing. He's demonstrating his lowliness to his disciples. They don't like it, and they push back, but they don't understand. Then Jesus is talking to his disciples in Matthew about doing the work of the kingdom and how it's like laborers being hired in a vineyard. In Matthew 20, starting in verse 25, he says, But Jesus called called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many." And the last one I've got for you here is where Paul, in his letter to the church in Corinth, tells them, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So, of course, we can see his lowliness in these patterns of his life and his ministry and see the lowliness that the Scriptures explicitly point out to us, right? But we also see him being exalted. That, that part's clear. The lowliness is this thing we think, oh, it's so cute, it's so sweet, he's being so demure, but that's not important. What's really important is that he gets exalted, and that is important, but we don't need need to miss what's actually happening. So we see that he's the Messiah, we see that he's the Savior of the world, he's exalted through his life and his death and resurrection, and now he sits at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again. And there we will see more of the lowly being exalted and the prideful being cast down, which is... Kind of the opposite of this idea. When the lowly are exalted, those who have chosen to exalt themselves are brought low. And so even upon Jesus' return, he will be removing the strong and exalting the lowly. The strong beast, the devil, will be torn down and cast into utter darkness, and the lowly sheep will enter the kingdom. And so for us to really contemplate this lowliness, his lowliness, and to understand it correctly, it's a valuable and important thing for us to do. Which brings us to number five. Number five, what should we see in this biblical theme? Well, first, we should see that we don't typically see the world correctly. You and I don't look at the world the right way. We don't see it through a biblical lens. We see this idea of the lowly being exalted, and we kind of like it. But we generally only really like it in our stories, in our books, our movies, our shows, our podcasts, Right? Everyone naturally roots for the underdog. We like it when Marlon and Dory work up the courage to go across the ocean and find Nemo. We like it when Woody and Buzz Lightyear work together to get themselves into that moving van so they can be with Andy. We like it when the U.S. hockey team beats the dirty Russians in 1984. Can you still say dirty Russians? I just did. Just kidding. They're not, they're not that dirty. In real life, though, We tend to think about those who are exalted as those who have earned it. That's how we think about it. Most of the time, we think of those who have put in the work, those who have earned their way to the top should be exalted, right? We like rags to riches stories like Bill Gates or Steve Jobs starting a a business in their garage and turning it into this multi billion dollar corporate conglomerate universal thing that controls all the phones in your pocket. We somehow like that story. Even the examples I gave you back at the beginning, right? The mail room and the CEO, the private and the general, the dishwasher and the general manager. If that mailroom guy works real hard and after 20 years becomes the CEO, we're like, yeah, lowly being exalted. That's great. We love it. He he worked his way up. If that private stays in the army for, as a career, Follows his orders, gets promoted, becomes a general. We're like, dang right, he deserved it. He worked hard. He deserves that. But that's not how this works. That's not what we're talking about. When we talk about the lowly being exalted, when God is showing us the lowly being exalted, he is not talking about or showing us those who have pulled themselves up by their bootstraps, worked real hard, earned their place. He's talking about those who are lowly and have no hope of exaltation because they are lowly, he will exalt them. It is God alone who does this. And we have to see and understand what I've got here for number one under this idea is that God's desire and plan is to use the weak things of the world to shame the strong and to accomplish great things. Now, does that mean that we ought not to try to get a promotion? No. Of course not. Does that mean we shouldn't try to work real hard and work our way up the corporate ladder and earn a better title and get more responsibility that hopefully comes with more pay? No, those are good things to be doing because that's not what we're talking about. That category of thinking is different than what we're talking about today. What we're talking about today is the difference between you and I trying to exalt ourselves. I want to make the name of Carl great. It's important that you think I'm great and I'll do whatever it takes for you to believe that and for you to exalt me. That is the, the issue that we're talking about. That's what God is against. So when he says that he, the humble, will be exalted and the exalted will be humbled, those of us who have striven to make our own names great are those that God will tear down, those that God will remove from the seed of power in our own hearts. Because ultimately we're trying to usurp his authority. We want the glory and the honor that's only due to his name. And so what should that mean for us? First, we have to understand that this is indeed God's desire and plan to use the weak things of the world to shame the strong and to accomplish great things. So this is this idea, this upside-downness of the way the kingdom works. The kingdom of God is different than the way we think about life. On Earth, In this life, our values are typically backwards from the way God has ordained things to be. The kingdom of God is upside down. It's backwards. The way the sinful human heart works is that we want to earn our way. We want to deserve what we get. We want to be responsible for our own successes, our own accolades. We want, in short, to be our own savior. I want to be okay. I want things to go well for me because I did something. Because I accomplished something. But that's not how the kingdom of God works. We see that upside-downness of the kingdom clearly in the Sermon on the Mount, which we looked at pretty pretty in great detail, chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew just a few weeks back. The poor in spirit will have the kingdom of God. The meek will inherit the earth. The persecuted will be rewarded, which is all different than what we think it ought to be. Matthew 20, verse 16. So the last will be first, and the first last. We've heard that a thousand times. It's crocheted on your grandma's pillow on our couch. You know that text. What does it mean? What does it really mean for the last to be first and the first to be last? What does that mean for God to exalt the lowly? Matthew 23, verses 11 and 12. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 to 31. But God chose... In the Lord. So God is purposefully exalting the lowly so that His name and His name alone will be honored and glorified, that all credit and all honor and all glory would rightly be attributed to Him. This is a part of the plan and the purpose of God. So therefore, we should embrace lowliness. That sounds great. What does that mean? What does it mean to embrace lowliness? Well, remember the definition we talked about at the beginning, like being lowly is someone who has little honor, little status, little rank. In the kingdom, that's exactly what all sinful humans are. Apart from Christ, we are inherently lowly. That is who we are. That is what we are. So as we struggle with our sinful nature, we need to understand that any improvement of our rank or our importance or our status is because of God. God is primarily concerned with eternal purposes, So his exaltation of his people comes to fruition when Christ returns. There is some degree of exaltation for the believer when they come to faith because we are adopted into his family. We become the inheritors of all of of the accolades and all of the privileges that come with Christ because our identity is in him. But there is a secondary piece of that exaltation that comes upon the return of Christ when all of his lowly sheep be welcomed into his house, that we will all sit at the marriage supper of the Lamb together. So as we struggle with sinful nature, we've got to understand that any of the things that are improved in our life are because of God. So only in Christ are any of these things made good, any of them made better. If we are exalted in any way, it is because of God's doing, not ours. So we need to embrace lowliness. Paul talks about this idea of understanding his weakness and how it is a good thing. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul's dealing with what he calls a thorn in the flesh, some sort of oppression, some sort of demonic activity, some sort of spiritual warfare. We don't know exactly what it is. He just says, I have this thorn in the flesh. It's driving me crazy. It's distracting me. It's frustrating me. Lord, take it away. And then he tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, how the Lord responds. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So embracing our lowliness, as Paul is doing here, we see Paul acknowledging and understanding that his weakness isn't a bad thing, it's a good thing. Because God is telling him that his power, God's power, God's great name will be made great through our weaknesses. So embracing our lowliness ought to result in a couple of things. Contentment and humility. So the first contentment. Paul writing to the church in Philippi and he's talking about his church, this church. He's talking about their faithfulness to provide for him financially that they've taken up that mantle a bunch of times. And every time they've had the opportunity to provide for him, they've done so. But he also hasn't always been provided for financially by other churches. And as he's speaking about this, he he takes the opportunity to tell them what he has learned through his life, his, his ability to be content with his circumstances. So Philippians 4, verses 11 to 13. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And so Paul is saying, I see the value of being content because that contentment helps me embrace the lowliness of my status in the world. I do not desire to make my name great. I desire to make the name of Christ great. I desire his name to be renowned. I desire his kingdom to come. Not mine, not my name, not my kingdom. So there was a time when Paul did not know how to give thanks from a dirt floor of a prison cell, but God showed him how. And there was a time when he did not know how to think about the idea of execution at the hands of Caesar and still be able to say, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. There was a time he didn't know how to do that, but God taught him how. There was a time that Paul's imprisonment might have seemed like some sort of interruption or a sabotage of God's plan to advance the gospel. But prison was God's plan for advancing the gospel. And that same thing can be true for us. It is true for us. Being brought low, being lowly might ruin our plans. It might be tough for us. We might not like our physical, emotional, spiritual, financial situation or circumstance, but it doesn't ruin God's plans. What God is up to is better and wiser and kinder for us than whatever we have planned. And so we can be content. We should be content with where we are. But again, that doesn't mean that striving for a better job or a better paycheck or caring for your family well or trying to do good things to care well for your family and for those around you, that that's somehow bad. That to embrace lowliness means don't try to do anything good. Don't try to be better. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is, is don't try to be God. Don't try to be the king. Don't try to sit on the throne. Don't try to exalt yourself.